0: And welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy!
1: Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Malin, and I'm so excited to be here with you. So happy October. I know we're like a week in, but it is the start of my favorite month of the year. I love October and fall weather. It's been pretty rainy here lately, but I'm hoping we get a few weeks of nice weather before our Midwest winter start. Am I right? So on today's episode, we're sharing some tips for choosing batting. We're going to talk about when a UFO actually becomes a UFO, chat about the history of log cabin quilts, and give some tips for storing sharp objects like your scissors and seam rippers. And on this episode's Getting Social, we chat with Lindsay Neal of Pen and Paper Patterns, and we think you're really gonna love this conversation. So let's get started. I'm here with Doris Brunette, the editor of Quilt Sampler. Today, we're going to talk about how to choose batting.
2: Well, I think as beginners, a lot of times we use whatever we have on hand, whatever's easy, whatever's cheaper on sale. But you spend so much time piecing your quilt top and choosing the perfect colors, perfect backing. Um, But many of us don't give our batting a second thought. And um, your beautiful project really deserves a batting that's going to enhance it and be well suited to its use.
1: Exactly. But with so many different battings on the market, it's sometimes hard to know which is the right choice. So today we're going to share some characteristics to look for next time you're shopping for batting.
2: All right, first, let's talk about the different treatments battings go through. Um, All batting starts out as individual fibers that are processed into a sheet or a web. Uh, Without further treatment, these unbonded fibers would come apart or clump together inside a quilt, making them difficult to use. To make battings more usable, they're either bonded or needle-punched. Manufacturers chemically bond batting fibers by applying a resin or using heat. Um, Your packaging will usually tell you which which process it went through. Bonded battings usually have a higher loft and they're airier in appearance than needle-punched battings. Bonded batting holds up well with use and does not require extensive quilting. If a batting is not bonded, it can be difficult to work with and have an uneven appearance. For needle-punching, a barbed needle is run through the batting fibers to tangle them, which provides some extra stability. For additional stability, a scrim, which is a thin, non-woven layer, can be added to the batting before it's needle-punched. The loft of needle-punched batting varies according to the number of layers, but the lower the loft, the better fine quilting details can be seen.
1: Batting can also come in different colors. Naturally, batting is an ecru color, but some battings are bleached to create a bright white, which can be used with white or light color fabrics, and some battings are dyed black to be used with the dark color fabrics. I usually stick with the natural ecru color batting unless I'm using a very light color background. Then I'll go with the white. Doris, do you have a favorite color batting you stick with? I tend to go with the natural colors as well. Um, Lately I've been using wool batting
2: a lot um, and it's just because I like the look that it gives me with my quilting. Yeah. Um, If I were to make a quilt with a black or navy background, um, i And I have in the past, but I've just used, you know, uh, a whiter off-white batting. Um, But I'd probably use the black batting as long as I didn't have any white or very light fabrics in my piecing um, that might take on a darker cast with that black batting behind it.
1: So now that we understand what the different kinds of batting on the market are, we can talk about how to choose the right one for your quilt. So there are three things to consider. So Doris, why don't you tell us the first one?
2: Okay, the first one is to consider the quilting method that you're going to be using. Do you plan to quilt your project by hand or by machine? Or are you tying it? Do you want to use pearl cotton and a utility stitch to create a folk art look? The batting type dictates the spacing between the rows of quilting. So before you select your batting, you should figure out whether you want dense quilting or sparse stitching. The manufacturer's label will specify the maximum stitching distance. If you stitch farther apart, than the label recommends your batting will shift and bunch up later, causing your finished project to look uneven. For instance, if you want to tie a project, select a batting that specifies a wide
1: distance between stitches. The second thing to consider is the intended use of the quilt. So is it a baby quilt that will be washed and dried extensively? Are you making a wall hanging that needs to maintain sharp, crisp corners? Or are you making a quilt that you want to drape loosely over a bed and tuck beneath pillows? Is it an heirloom project that will be used sparingly and only laundered once every few years? Or is it a decorative item that will never be washed? So answer these questions to determine which batting is best for your project. Those are all good
2: things to think about. Um, Next, you'll want to consider the desired appearance and the loft of the batting you want to choose. Do you want your quilt to be big and puffy or flat and drapeable? Some battings shrink more than others, so you want to check the label to see how much percentage it shrinks when washed. If you want an antique appearance, um, get a batting that shrinks more so you're going to get a pretty puckered look when it's laundered. Some people really like that crinkly look. I love that crinkly
1: look. (laughs) And don't forget the size. Your batting needs to be larger than the quilt top to allow for a take up during quilting and for stabilization if you're using a quilting frame. So we suggest adding eight inches to both the length and the width measurements to allow an extra four inches of batting around the entire quilt. Batting is sold on the bolt and in packages for standard quilt sizes. So you should be able to find the perfect size for your project.
2: We spend so much time and care on choosing the fabrics and piecing our quilts, but really the look of the quilting and the quilt structure is determined by the batting. So put a little thought into your choice on your next project. You can find a link to printable batting resources in our show notes for this episode, so you can have the information handy when you need it.
1: We'll be back after this quick ad break. I'm back with Doris for our UFO Challenge, a segment where we address common finishing problems so you can complete your UFOs. So today we're answering a question we got from one of our listeners in our UFO Challenge group. So this is from Gail Yadon, and she asks, when does a UFO become a UFO? When you purchase or when you finally start cutting into it? So Doris, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I think this is a really good question and um, our Facebook group had kind of an active conversation about this when (laughs) she asked the question, so um, I think the answer varies for different quilters. A lot of quilters claim it's when you make the first cut. That's what some of the people in our Facebook group said. Others said the project needs to be set aside for some amount of time before it becomes a UFO. Some classify or even count the kits that they have on hand that they haven't started yet, or if you have fabric and patterns set aside for something you haven't started yet, some of them count those as UFOs. Around the office, we tend to agree that a UFO is an unfinished project consisting of partially sewn blocks or a partially sewn top that's been neglected for a while. Sometimes it might even be something that's quilted and just needs to be bound to be finished up, but it's considered a UFO if it's just sitting there waiting to be finished. (laughs) I have a list of projects. I keep track of my UFOs and my works in progress, WIPs, WIPs, and unstarted projects, and the UFOs are definitely the largest list (laughs) or the largest (laughs) amount out of those three, but it's projects I kind of count them as UFOs if I started them more than a few months ago and then set them aside to move on to some other, you know, bright shiny object that distracted me, um, caught my eye. That happens a lot. I think that happens for a lot of us. The works in progress are projects that I've been continuously working on. Even if I just pick it up to work on every, you know, month or two months or so, um, I still consider it a work in progress if I've made progress on it. Um, the UFOs tend to sit along, sit around for a little longer, months, sometimes even years, without being worked <laughs> on. Um, I recently finished a 14-year-old project, and I probably hadn't touched it for at least five years. Oh, wow. So, And it wasn't even, it was not a big project. I should have finished it a long time yeah. ago, it was just I kind of had, you know, like fell out of love with it, I guess, but I'm glad that it's done. And then I have bee blocks that are sitting around from like eight years ago. and. After I collected them all from, you know, other quilters that made the blocks for me, I just haven't done anything to piece them into a top. So I count those as a UFO. And then I have, you know, like long-term projects that I consider works in progress, like an EPP project that will take me a long time. I've been working on it for over a year. And it's my, like, grab-and-go project. Like, when I travel, I take it with me. It's just something easy to take with me if I'm maybe sitting in a doctor's office or something. So it's like I don't do... I do a little bit of it each month, I guess you could say. I make a little progress, so I don't count that as a UFO. But I guess it all depends. It's kind of a personal decision on differing opinions on what, on that topic and how to define it. Um, none of them are right or wrong. And as long as your UFOs don't overwhelm you, I don't think it really matters. Some people are overwhelmed by them, and I tend to be. So that's why I started keeping a list of them, because that makes it less overwhelming if I can see like at a glance what, what there is to do. But if they are overwhelming you, I'd suggest um, joining the Facebook group or UFO Challenge Facebook group or even just checking into our Instagram account and following along there because it's good motivation to keep working on them and finish things up.
1: Absolutely. I really like the definitions of UFO and works in progress that you (laughs) specified. And if you're interested in joining our UFO Challenge group, you can find more information at allpeoplequilt.com resolution. And then always on the first podcast of the month, which we know we're a week in at this point, we announce the new UFO number for those who are part of our challenge. And October's number is seven. Thanks, Doris. Thank you. Now I'm here with Jody Sanders, the editor of American Patchwork and Quilting for Collector's Corner, a segment where we explore antique quilts and notions in their history.
3: Hi, Jody. Hello, Lindsay. Hey, um, if you ask quilters to name their top five quilt blocks, I would guess that the log cabin block would make the list of most quilters. I know it does for me. How about for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a perennial favorite and it's one that um, is super versatile and I think it's a one that a lot of quilters even start out at sometimes when they're making their first quilt. If you're not familiar what a log cabin block is, it usually starts with a square, and then strips are added around the square, and often with two sides being lighter fabrics and the opposite two sides being darker fabrics, so you kind of get this light and dark effect. Sometimes there's a red center square, and that was thought to symbolize the hearth of the home or like the fireplace um, where you're providing warmth. And um, so that was just often sometimes the center of a vintage log cabin quilt. And you'd also see yellow quite often as the center square. And that was believed to represent that light was shining through the window. Now in the later part of the 19th century, a lot of log cabin quilts were made using fabric scraps that were popular during that time. So things like silk and velvet and wool and satin, um, those were the kinds of fabrics that were used for clothing. And so they had scraps and they were making quilts based um, on some of those scraps. But because those fabrics were all different weights and they were difficult to like sew together, um, quilters are smart and they're always innovative. And so what they started doing was they started sewing these fabrics on a foundation and the foundation was used usually muslin, and they would sew the pieces um, onto the muslin foundation, and it would just help stabilize it a little bit. Those fabrics were slick, they were different weights, and so having that muslin foundation to sew on really helped stabilize things. But when it came time to sew those blocks together to make the quilt top, the thickness of the blocks and the, with the foundation made quilting those tops really difficult. So you'll see a lot of quilts from that time, excuse me, they didn't have batting because, again, you've got that extra thickness, and because of that thickness, many quilts during this time were tied because it was too hard to get your needle and thread through to try and hand quilt it. So you'll see a lot of quilts that are tied from the latter part of the 19th century. Now, as we moved into the 20th century, we saw shirtings were very popular, uh, colors like morning gray and indigo and claret, and also plaids. We saw a lot of plaids that were being incorporated into log cabin quilts at that time. Now, the 1930s, pastels were introduced. So that gave it a totally different look to log cabin quilts. I actually have a 1930s log cabin quilt in my collection that has green squares in the center, which is really unusual. You don't see a lot of log cabin quilts with greens in the center. It has very pretty, what I call, kind of spring eastery colors, and I love to bring it out for decorating in the spring. Now, depending on the orientation of the quilt blocks, the placement of the light and the dark sides Um, There are multiple names for the settings when you put these blocks together. So some of the names include Sunshine and Shadow, uh, Streak of Lightning, Barn Raising, Straight Furrow, Chevron, and then of course just a straight set where you're setting the blocks right next to each other in the same pattern. But, um, any pattern that uses a triangle square could actually, you could substitute a log cabin block. So if you think about it, the log cabin block has the light side and the dark side, kind of like a triangle square. Well, you could make a pinwheel quilt, or you could make a star pattern. Those could also be used to actually make a quilt using log cabin blocks, but to make that design. Now, of course, today there's a lot of books and a lot of specialty rulers. Um, There's dies for die-cutting systems and plastic templates that have all been developed because of the popularity of the log cabin blocks. There's also a lot of variations of the typical, what we think of as light and dark uh, log cabin block. So you might be familiar with pineapple blocks, courthouse steps, um, twisted or curved versions of log cabins. Also think about it, instead of the center kind of square, you also could use a rectangle, you could use a triangle, you could use a hexagon, those all make great what we think of as kind of log cabiny kinds of quilts. Now, if you want to make your own log cabin quilt, we've got a lot of terrific um, eye candy on our website, allpeoplequilt.com, and there are some free patterns there. There's some patterns for purchase. So if you're interested in just learning more about log cabin patterns and seeing the variety of them that are available, check out the website.
1: Thank you so much, Jody. Now is Reader Tips, a segment where we share your best advice to common quilting struggles. This week we'll explore a few options for storing sharp objects like scissors and seam rippers. So Nancy Smith says, because the cover of my seam ripper kept falling off, I decided to use a wine cork instead. The sharp tip of the seam ripper easily slides into the cork and stays in place. Mary Hughes says, when my children were younger, they often would use my good scissors as utility scissors. To stop this, I locked the handles together with a small padlock, which made the scissors impossible to use. I kept the padlock key in my box of pins. That's very clever, Mary. We have another tip from Donna Moore about storing your sharp objects around children. She says, I have little grandchildren around a lot. For some reason, they seem to love my quilting room the most. To make sure they don't get hurt by any of my sharp tools, I store the tools in an old eyeglass case that I have marked with big X's and permanent marker. My grandchildren know not to touch that case. Marilyn Hopkins says, when changing the blade of my rotary cutter, I write used on the blade with a permanent marker. These blades then go in a second rotary cutter marked paper. I use this cutter for paper, template plastic, and home decorating fabrics, saving my sharpest blade to cut quilting cottons. Mindy Volker says, I attached a suction cup to the side of my sewing machine so I can keep a pair of small snips close at hand. Now I can find my scissors immediately without even looking and dangling threads are no longer a problem. I love those tips. We always think you guys have the best tips that you submit to us. So if you're interested to submit a tip for us to feature in the magazine or on the podcast, send an email of your tip to apqtips at meredith.com. We'll be back after this quick ad break.
4: Welcome to Getting Social with Jess, I'm your host Jess Ziegler. This week I get to bring you my conversation with Lindsay Neal who is the designer behind Pen and Paper Patterns. She can be found on Instagram at Pen and Paper Patterns and she also has a website. If you have not seen her work before, oh my goodness, go check her out. She has some of the cutest designs. Um, I just really enjoy her as a person and as a designer and I think you will too. So this conversation is honest It's what she has dealt with recently and it's about overwhelm and too much of a good thing, which is quilting (laughs) in her life and her kind of resetting and coming back with better boundaries. And if you've ever been there, I feel like this interview is going to resonate with you. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. I have wanted to talk to you about, well, first of all, could you give us a little bit of a background of your personal life and your quilting life? I am a mom to three.
5: I have two boys and a girl. I have an 18 year old He just started college this year. It's a big adjustment. I have a senior and then a sophomore. Yes, I'm busy being a mom. I am a wife. (laughs) I've been sewing for about um, since, seriously, since 2011. Technically, I've, I've been sewing since 2003, but I was, for a big chunk of time, because I was raising three kids, I just did the
4: basics for a very long time. So let me stop you there because yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Gail right now oh.
0: <laughs>
4: I love Gail so yeah. did Gail's your mom did you bring yeah. her into quilting or was it the other way around
5: well she actually sewed like when I was younger she made like our Halloween costumes and everything so she was mainly a garment sewer for a while she made like her own clothing I never sewed when I was younger but I knew she sewed So anyways, it really was, it ended up being, I brought her into the quilting world. Like she was scrapbooking. She took a break from sewing and she scrapbooked for the longest time. And then I started sewing and I was like, you got it. I know you're going to love quilting. You got to try this. And she had, I think she had dabbled a little bit and made maybe a few quilts. But
4: anyways, yeah. So I got her hooked on it basically, but. She's such an excellent piecer, and yeah. I've gotten to quilt for her for a few times, and it just seems like she's a natural at it. So yes, oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so recently you've been on Instagram talking about just the fact that our culture <laughs> needs to <Yeah>. slow down. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this might not be the whole wide world of quilting, but it seems like modern quilting, quilting on social media, quilting on Instagram. Yeah. That message has really resonated with me. And I just wonder if you could expound on like both your feelings. And I know that you did a poll in your stories about like how many people feel like this is, you know, rushed or out of control or you feel pressed to do all these things. Kind of want to hear about your, um, what do you call it? Unscientific results. So, okay. That's a lot of <laughs> stuff to deal with. So I'm going to pass, pass <laughs> the
5: mic to you. No, I I completely agree and I just want to throw a disclaimer out there that my feelings on this whole thing is just based on personal experience and I definitely don't want to like make people feel shamed or guilt if they don't share the same feelings or experience but yeah so um, I took a break recently from sewing. And mostly my business. I mean, I still had to do things here, here and there. But um, yeah, I took about a four-month break. And right before I took my break, I had recently released four quilt pat patterns in four months. And in my personal life, we were like in the process of getting our house ready to sell. And so there was just a lot. And my son, like I said, he was um, graduating from high school, and we had all that going on. So, anyways, there was just a combination of a lot going on in both my personal and professional life. And I um, just reached a breaking point. Like I was like, something has to give. And for a while on Instagram, I kind of just was feeling like, I don't know how any other better way to say it than just like a used car salesman in a way. Like I just felt like every post I was asking for people to buy my patterns. I was asking for people to buy from other companies I was collaborating with. I just wasn't, finding the joy in sewing like I did when I first started. And also the fact that I put this pressure on myself that I had to release four patterns in four months Like why I don't looking back on it, I'm like, why did I do that to myself? But anyway, so I, I took a break and during the four months, I like the first month of that break, I was like twiddling my thumbs like this is torture because, you know, as a as a professional in this industry, I was basically like every a lot of other professionals in this industry. I was going at like 60, whatever, 80 miles per hour. So I completely put the brakes on that. And I was going about like five miles per hour in comparison, you know, to everyone else. So that was a huge adjustment. I felt like it took a while for me to realize that not being productive 24/7 and busy 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 is okay. And if anything, I'm the one, you know, now that I took a step back, I'm like slowing down, going 5 miles per hour or whatever is actually the correct speed limit. Do you know everybody else is going 55 miles over the <laughs> speed limit and do you know I mean that's a weird I don't know if that analogy makes sense, but,
3: it totally
5: uh, does. yeah. So during the break, it was an adjustment to learn how to just, cause I'm naturally, am an obsessive kind of workaholic personality. So it was like, it took a, a little bit to just be okay with doing nothing. And I'm saying nothing and And you know, whatever. Um, Because really, I was exploring, I was finally taking time to explore other interests that I had completely neglected since I started sewing. Like, for example, reading books, I used to be a part of a book club, and I used to read all the time. And then as soon as I started sewing, stopped completely, like it just completely consumed my life. Yeah, and it just wasn't wasn't healthy. So during that break, I just kind of learned how to slow down. And I also realized that there definitely was this what's the word, like a, a culture? in our community of more, 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 more. And if you're not keeping up, then you um, have this feeling of you don't belong or you are not as valuable as somebody who maybe doesn't make as much. Yeah, so I just was like, I didn't want to be a part of the problem anymore too. So when I came back, I wanted to be really intentional about that and not perpetuate that feeling of like, you have to just be sewing every day and you have to yeah just be making all the time it's just not not a healthy mentality and like another analogy I was thinking of during my break too it's like for the longest time I personally I felt like I was eating ice cream another weird analogy I was eating ice cream for breakfast lunch and dinner every day and by ice cream I mean like so you know what I mean like (laughs) Okay. And ice cream's delicious and it's like so tasty. So you want to eat it all the time. But if that's all you're doing, you're going to make yourself sick. And during my break, it really helped you. Like I realized by reading, exercising, doing other things in my life, and not just focusing so much on sewing, that I was feeling more like a complete, fulfilled whole person by, you know, reintroducing other interests and um, things in my life. So but I feel like that's how a lot of people feel. And on my poll, it was like an overwhelming, I asked people, do you also feel this way? And I think it was like 78% of people said, yes, I do. And I had a lot of people reach out to me and they said, I said no to that poll, that I don't feel this way. But it's only because I recently figured out how to slow down basically, or they said that they, they didn't feel that pressure because they weren't a part of this industry and actually um, I had a few people say that that they they feel like if they were a part of this industry if they were a a pattern designer um, or anything like that that they would they would understand where that pressure and anxiety stress to you know just constant constantly be making 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 and all that stuff comes from but and a lot of us in this industry who do this as a business or have businesses we don't have an employee or you know we're doing this all ourselves. So we have to, we're wearing all the hat. I mean, to a certain extent, you do have to, you're constantly, if this is a business for you, you have to be thinking about it all the time. But something that I've realized since coming back is I can decide what, you know, I am the owner. I'm the boss. So like I used to work weekends. I used to work after dinner. I would, you know, just all the time. And now I'm like, why am I can work nine to five. I can say, Hey, I'm not working Saturday and Sunday, you know, and light like, and my business will survive. It will d- be fine.
4: So setting those boundaries, I think helps so much too. Are there any strategies that you've employed to like make yourself, I mean, was it the break that got you into the different mind frame or do you have rules like at five o'clock I stop or on you know are there any triggers are you like you stay out of your room or or how do you manage that
5: (laughs) um definitely set rules for myself so from nine to five basically is at Monday through Friday is when I work and when I sew actually this is another strategy of mine since I've come back or even during my break I like to have a to-do list and so every day I make a to-do list and the first thing I put on my to-do list is um like going to the gym or, you know, putting things on my to-do list that are more of a priority, This should be more of a priority than spending all day sewing or working. But I mean, I factor that in too, but I make sure the first thing I put on there is, you know, taking care of myself, taking care of my kids, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the rest figure, figure that out during the day, but for sure it is a struggle to, and it's when you get so excited and you're passionate about something, you just want to do it all the time. And I'm totally guilty of like getting tunnel vision (laughs) when I am excited and passionate about something and just, I start to neglect the things. And things that are, you know, truly what's most important in your life. Because while sewing and even for me, sewing is like a, a way to relax, but if you're just doing it
4: nonstop,
5: then it's like it yeah. stops
4: being fun and a positive thing. I love how you're kind of like taking the lead on this because I think somebody needs to. In response to this, you've kind of come up with a cute idea. <laughs> about doing a really, really long sew along, which I think is brilliant. Tell us more about that.
5: Yeah, so um, while I was working on my Won't You Be My Neighbor quilt pattern, like any other pattern designer, when you're working on it, you usually start getting requests for a sew along. And I've done those before and they're generally like six, eight weeks long. And I just, like I said earlier, I just didn't want to be a part of that problem or that cycle that we're creating in this community where we're expecting other quilters who most likely have full-time jobs. They're are full-time, they're stay-at-home moms or dads or whatever. They don't have all day to sew. Do you know what I mean? So we're, ex- we're putting this overwhelming pressure and expectation and deadline. I mean, obviously people are signing up to do this. So I mean, they have the option not to do it, but you don't see sew-alongs that are longer. I mean, unless you did a block of the month, which I've done those before, too. But yeah, for the most part, they're just, you know, a handful of weeks long. So yeah, I was like, okay, I'll do a sew along, but let's make it a realistic, um, very doable deadline or schedule to say, hey, it's okay. If it takes you, you know, if you spend a month just doing these nine blocks or whatever it is, like that's totally okay. And then you can make room for other things in your life. Or maybe you could, if you enjoy sewing, you know, if you can't and do enjoy sewing all the time you can work on other stuff too so yeah and when I brought up that idea there was an overwhelming response of yes like this is what this is the sew-along that I need and this is uh works for me and my life and and people saying they had so many projects from previous sew-alongs that they needed
4: to finish right so tell us what it's called and when Um, it starts and what pattern that you have but you've also opened it up like just join and do whatever you want. (laughs)
5: Yeah. So it's called Slow Your Roll Sew Along. I have two schedules. So you can either follow my Won't You Be My Neighbor quilt pattern, or you can just, there's a blank schedule. And for this every month, you can fill in what your goals are or what you want to accomplish that month. And every month I'll have prizes that I'm giving away. And none of them are fabric, (laughs) sewing notion patterns. I feel like we all have enough of that in our lives. So they're all like um, encouraging kind of, I don't want to say (laughs) self-help kind of things, but just, yeah, very encouraging and fun, funny kind of prizes um, like pins and prints, mugs. Um, I'm going to throw in some like face masks and like, you know, like that. Yeah. So just prizes that encourage you to take care of yourself and yeah, think out the the quilty sewing box basically.
4: (laughs) Yeah. A more well-rounded life. I I like where you're going with this. (laughs) I appreciate that you are taking care of that part of yourself and encouraging other people to do that as well. I think it is so very important. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you for being the voice. Yeah, it was so fun. Thanks for having me. So what do you think after listening to that interview? Have you been there? Are you there currently? Have you um, reprioritized and brought yourself back from um, the brink of too much? I'd love to hear about it. You're always welcome to reach out to me. I'm threaded quilting on Instagram and just drop me a line. So make sure to check out Lindsay's Won't You Be My Neighbor quilt. The slow your roll so along that she's hosting... Starts October 20th, and it goes all the way to May 20th, which leaves a whopping seven months to just slow your roll. Enjoy it. Thanks for listening today. I hope you have a wonderful and a very balanced
1: week. Bye. Before we leave today, I wanted to quickly highlight a review of our podcast. So someone with the username Strobalicious said, I have had my iPhone for years and didn't know what a podcast was. My daughter kept talking about it and she showed me, so I entered quilting and saw your podcast. I had some chores in the kitchen and know I get sidetracked if the TV is on. So I listened to two of your segments. I'm hooked. I love hearing that. I'm so glad your daughter shared how to listen to a podcast. That's always a super fun thing for us quilters to all listen into and share that information. So if this was your review, please reach out to us at APQ Podcast at meredith.com so we can send you a little gift and remember if you love this podcast please leave us a review we may feature yours on an upcoming show
0: hi all and thanks for listening keep in touch american patchwork and quilting is on facebook pinterest and instagram at all people quilt email us at apq at meredith.com resources for this week can be found at all people quilt.com slash podcast and if you love the american patchwork and quilting podcast please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free and don't forget to rate and review the show it helps other quilters find us have a creative week